This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. As representatives from the seven wealthiest nations on the planet failed during their recent meetings to waive vaccine patents, as we're in the midst of a deadly global pandemic, Leaders from the Global South met online to push back. The Summit for Vaccine Internationalism, convened by the group Progressive International, drew spokespeople from nations like Venezuela, India and Vietnam, and left-leaning leaders from Western nations like the UK's Jeremy Corbyn and Greece's Yanis Varoufakis. Participants called for a, quote, new international health order, to overcome what they call vaccine apartheid. We go now to India to speak with Varsha Gandhikota Nalutla. She is the co-coordinator of the Summit for Vaccine Internationalism and is a cabinet member of the Progressive International. Welcome to the program, Varsha. Thank you, Sonali. Thanks for having me. So tell me about why the summit was convened. Is it, was it in direct response to the G7 and the failure of the G7 to do what many people were hoping they would do, which was waive the vaccine patents? Yes, absolutely. I've, I've been asked this question a lot, right? And I should make this clear. This is not something we set out to do when the pandemic began. It's not even something that we thought we'd do when the vaccines began to be researched. I certainly, for one, did not think we'd find ourselves in the situation today of vaccine apartheid. But when it became extremely clear when the G7 met and the G7 countries have purchased over a third of the world's vaccine supply, despite making up only 13% of the global population, whereas, you know, continents like Africa, meanwhile, with 1.3 or so billion people have vaccinated less than 2% of the entire continent. And it was when it became extremely clear that it would take some countries, especially low-income countries, something like 57 years for everyone to be fully vaccinated, we had to convene this emergency summit because we know that we have the technology, the materials, the productive capacity to vaccinate the world, but this pandemic is being artificially extended. So in that, in that sense, this summit was an inevitability with no other options on the table. We came together to challenge the system. And our aim was simple, right? To develop a common plan to produce and distribute vaccines to all with concrete commitments to pool technology, invoke patent waivers, and invest in rapid production, a solution from the global south based on solidarity. And we were successful in doing that. So who were the participants? There were some you know, ministers, sort of government representatives from nations themselves, uh, mostly, I understand, from the global south, but also some leaders from the UK and Canada and Greece. Yes. So we had governments of Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, Mexico, Argentina. We had regional governments of Kisumu County in Kenya, of the Kerala government in India. And then we have progressive parliamentarians like Yanis Varoufakis from Greece, Nikki Ashton from Canada, Jeremy Corbyn from the UK, and a whole host of you know, healthcare worker unions like the National Nurses Union in the US, ASHA workers in India, and vaccine manufacturers like Virko here again, a biologics factory in India, BioLease in Canada, who were all coming together to kind of talk about a whole host of issues that healthcare workers bearing witness of what it means for the pandemic to go on from the front lines and the governments and vaccine manufacturers thinking about how we can actually produce vaccines for everyone involved. What has been the cost of these patents remaining in place? I mean, can we measure in lives? You, you mentioned earlier that the pandemic is being extended, but that means the longer it stays around, the more people get infected and the more people die. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, this is extremely visceral where I am today, which is in India, and we're seeing deaths of uh, we were seeing deaths of around 4,000 or more a day until very, very recently. We have a new wave here. Brazil, of course, has, has been terrible with the cases. The cases are now escalating in Vietnam, in Johannesburg, in South Africa. So the question is not simply, would the people have died, though that have died from COVID not have done so if they'd been vaccinated? Because yes, it's true that in India, for instance, many have died because of lack of oxygen, lack of hospital beds, essentially a result of public health systems being completely overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of people falling sick. But this is the reality, right? In a whole host of countries, advanced and developing countries included, where public health systems are not strong enough to withstand sickness at this scale. So as long as this pandemic goes on, and the only way to stop it is for all of us to achieve herd immunity through mass vaccination, we will continue to see deaths. And we can actually make vaccines, enough vaccines for the whole world in one year. For instance, there's a new report from Public Citizen about how the cost is only about $23 billion if Moderna were forced to share their technology. So in this moment, if every laboratory and every factory and every scientist were actually empowered to pro produce more vaccines, we could stop the pandemic. Instead, rich countries have kind of been stopping and holding vaccines and stopping any uh, patent waivers from occurring. And I want to talk a bit about kind of the new variants that have, you know, new variants of concern, as they're called by the World Health Organization, that have been popping up everywhere, right? Starting from the UK to Brazil, South Africa, now the Delta variant in India. And there's been this kind of question of why is it mutating at such an alarming rate? Why is the virus mutating so much faster? And it's not mutating any faster. There's a new report out from Vox about, you know, a couple of um, days ago, which really is about viruses doing just what it does. We are giving it the opportunity to replicate and mutate by allowing it to spread everywhere. So as long as the virus exists, there will be more variants. To, to stop the variants, we need to stop the virus. To stop these deaths and save lives, we need to stop and end the pandemic. I, I know you're not a, a, a you know vaccine uh, or virus expert, but isn't it true that the longer the virus is allowed to continue and spread, the the more chance there is of a variant mutating that will elude the vaccines we have. I mean, I know that it's possible with this new mRNA technology to adapt the vaccines to new variants, but then we're talking about even the residents of wealthy nations, you know, getting a booster shot every six months. It seems that it would benefit not just the global south, but the entire world, including the residents of wealthy nations, if everybody is vaccinated. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm, you know, as someone that's not a scientist, I certainly can't speak about the exact likelihood of this happening, but there have been enough and more warnings now from public health experts, from virologists, that this is very much a possibility. In fact, the variant that we're seeing in India today is called a double mutant for that reason. There's two mutations as a part of this variant, one that's, you know, a, a kind of power for regular course, as have uh, compared to the variants that have come before. And there's another mutation as a part of it, which they think makes it possible for it to infect people that have already once gotten COVID before, and it's able to pierce through that immunity. And so in that sense, it is, it is extremely likely. And, you know, it's a real failure to reckon with the idea that truly nobody is safe until everyone is safe. So there seems to be a belief by, especially by rich country governments, that the pandemic can somehow be kept out of their borders so that a crisis of everywhere is turned into a crisis elsewhere. And it's a combination of, you know, viciousness and idiocy. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here because those are the stakes. It's, it is about our survival. 
So let's talk about what the G7 nations did decide. We know that Joe Biden, after a tremendous um, grassroots lobbying campaign ahead of the G7 did say that he supported waiving the vaccine patents. This was considered a, a really big deal. Even Emmanuel Macron of France said that he supported that. And there were high hopes going into the G7. What happened? You know, they, they it seems as though what came out of the G7 was a promise to donate some hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines. Was that it? And, and, and if so, why? What, what do you stopped them from waiving the vaccine patents, even with people like Biden and Ma Macron on board? This is the hold that big private capital has over some of these governments. I mean, big pharmaceutical companies have been allowed free reign in this pandemic to decide how much is produced, who produces it, ensuring complete unequal access to the vaccines. Um, you know, a good example of kind of an illustrative example of understanding this is some of the tremendous work done by a corporate observatory, corporate Europe observatory, who ran an investigation into who meets with the European Commission to discuss the scarcity of COVID-19 vaccines and generally to discuss kind of medicines and the issue of COVID-19 in Europe and more globally. And the investigation of all of these uh, kind of meetings showed a very clear pattern, right? Only those that were not questioning Big Pharma's monopoly uh, or any kind of monopoly on patents were allowed to meet with the commissioner at all. So as it turns out, I think, um, you know, at the time that this report came out, which is early May, 117 encounters had happened with pharma lobbyists, with organizations like MSF, you know, Medicine So Frontier, the Doctors Without Borders, were denied even a single meeting. The head of MSF was denied even a single meeting with the commissioner. So critical voices aren't being heard. So in that sense, of course, it's an echo chamber. But certainly, we also have to talk about, you know, someone like Bill Gates here, because in so many ways this global strategy that we're currently now seeing and the global health system that we're currently seeing is a brainchild of Bill Gates who has espoused this idea of public-private partnerships for so long and has always endorsed this idea of the direct involvement of pharma companies in public health responses especially global public health responses and you know it comes from this belief that truly the global south can't produce for itself he came onto tv and said oh it's not like there's any idle factory lying around India could only build its industry because of our grants and our expertise. Angela Merkel repeated the same line and said, India developed only because Europe allowed it to do so. So it is a true kind of failure to reckon with the fact that, you know, there is capacity in the global south. And in fact, these rich country governments are the block for us to be able to produce vaccines for ourselves. And lastly, I want to say, it's also truly, you know, them reckoning with a crisis of their own making, because they could have stopped the situation from occurring. They could have not signed away the rights, but they did. I mean, something like Moderna, which was funded almost entirely by U.S. taxpayer money, could have been the U.S. government's vaccine, but the rights were signed away. Same thing with Oxford AstraZeneca, right, which was funded mostly by U.K. taxpayer money. Once again, the rights were signed away, and now they find themselves in a situation where they're not able to fight, um, you know, fight the kind of power that Big Pharma has over all of the different systems that we've built. What about vaccines developed by other nations? Um, you know, it seems as though the, the global south does not necessarily have to depend on the West, on wealthy nations. As you alluded, India has 
developed its own vaccine technology. In fact, India is the leading producer of vaccines worldwide in general, not just not COVID vaccines, but vaccines in general. Um, but Russia has developed a vaccine, so has China, and India has its own vaccine as well. Is it not possible for there to be mass production of those vaccines that have originated in either Russia and China or countries in the global south like India? Certainly with the Chinese and the Russian vaccines, the Indian case is trickier and I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. Um, you know, the Chinese and Russian vaccines, a lot of the impediment in the early stages was because they were heavily dismissed in Western media. And especially in the beginning, and in part, of course, stemming from this kind of idea that they were somehow inferior to the vaccines being produced in the West, because, you know, the rest of the world could only ever kind of copy or imitate the West. Um, you know, one of our co-moderators of some of our roundtables, Achal Prabhala, a health activist, talked about this in our closing declaration, about how China and Russia have actually truly already displayed a sense of vaccine internationalism. So yes, it is possible to mass produce them. And this is already underway, I think, in a whole host of countries, more than about 45 or so have given, have now approved um, the Chinese and Russian vaccines for domestic use. Where this summit takes this project a step further is kind of, as Achal says very clearly, is an express commitment of solidarity, right, about a shared collective enterprise and an invite to kind of share in this project. So the project is not just about this vaccine, this wave, or this pandemic, but really about building an alliance that can transform the global health system from charity to solidarity and from competition to cooperation. Um, the India case, you know, is a slightly trickier one, partly owing to the misma complete mismanagement, of course, of the Indian government. They didn't even begin to consider technology transfer until a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. um, letting 30 or so public sector units within India itself kind of that could have been adapted and ready to go. They just let them sit idle. And now the head of the pharma company that made the Indian vaccine, Covaxin, has just put out a statement about how it's just going to take too long because many of these manufacturing facilities are just too behind the curve and not ready. Internationally, um, and a virologist could kind of speak to this a lot more, Covaxin is yet to receive the World Health Organization's approval. And so that makes it, um, you know, that's an impediment to shared manufacturing. But, you know, it's important to mention here, I think that um, in India itself, the company was allowed to run completely rampant, where uh, and allowed to charge completely exorbitant prices, something touching 1400 rupees per dose, which is close to kind of 19 US dollars, which is huge, um, you know, which is extremely exorbitant for a country like India. So this is where I want to return to say Cuba, right, and the commitment that they made at our summit to openly license and at solidarity prices, not only because the Cuban vaccines are the type of vaccine that are actually easier to produce and cheaper to produce, but they've also really committed to share it affordably with only a small, um, with only a small margin. What are the next steps um, after this summit? How will you build on the Summit for Vaccine Internationalism, um, which we'll post a, post a link to, by the way. The whole thing is online and you can watch the speeches by uh, many of these the, the participants, what are the next steps now? And specifically uh, for our American audience here, what would you suggest? we do if we want to see an end to this global vaccine apartheid? 
Um, yeah, the next steps are, you know, twofold. One, we are going to have follow-up meetings to decide some of the specifics of the incredible commitments that were made at the summit, whether that's on open licensing, on shared manufacturing, on solidarity pricing, sharing of regulatory capacity, all made by these governments um, at the table and agree on things like timelines. But we also look to expand this alliance and collaborate with any local, regional, and national governments who share the politics of this internationalist project, especially our principles of um, health sovereignty. For the viewers, uh, for the viewers in the US, you know, I should say activists, I should thank the activists in the US who've already, who's, you know, really changed kind of what I thought was possible by uh, moving the Biden administration into changing their position on the waiver. I think now it's really about talking about the urgency of the situation, right? Like the timelines of when the waiver could become a possibility are as of now set to December. And I want to remind everyone again, from the last time that the G7 met, which was in February to now, a million more people have died of COVID-19. So those are the stakes that we're dealing with. So, you know, in that situation to somehow accept that December is an okay timeline is completely kind of atrocious and stunning to me. So one is to kind of keep up this pressure. But the second is that the Biden administration can already do a lot more, right? They can invoke the Defense Production Act and force Moderna, for instance, to share their vaccine technology with other manufacturers, to force Johnson & Johnson to do so, as they did with Merck. So when it was their own kind of pharma company for their own production and consumption of the vaccines, turns out it was extremely smooth and extremely easy, and Biden could just kind of invoke a quick, you know, with a button, kind of invoke a quick law and make the production happen. But when it comes to vaccines for the global south, that same political will doesn't seem to exist for and the only override. The only loss for Biden, there is no loss for Biden. The only loss is the profits of those companies or, or, or not even that. Yeah, exactly. No loss for Biden at all, because as I mentioned, again, the U.S. government has already invested hordes of taxpayer money into these vaccines already. So in that sense, these pharma companies have already profited. And beyond that, they've already made millions and millions of dollars mm -hmm. in just this last one year. So there really isn't anything at stake other than you know, this system will definitely change and it will give the US government and, you know, other organizations and people like Bill Gates lesser control over the lives of everyone else in the global south. So I can see why, you know, there's a real resistance to that idea because it is a part of a much larger transformation of the process of decolonization. So we're very clear-eyed about, you know, what the stakes are in, in that sense. Finally, um, Varsha, how do you view the fact that right now in the United States, which last year was the epicenter of the virus, the U.S. had, you know, was, had, had more cases per capita than any other nation, we've lost 600,000 plus people, yet today any American can walk into, you know, nearly any pharmacy and get a vaccine on the spot if they choose, and millions of Americans are choosing not to because they're driven by fear and misinformation. How do people in the global south view this, you know, what can only be seen as an abuse of privilege? I mean, look, vaccine hesitancy is, is, is a problem, is an issue shared by many countries, right? Although, of course, it stems from kind of different cultural histories. The holding of vaccines by rich country governments is just purely criminal. There's no other words for it. You know, uh, Alina, one of the great activists from MSF here in India talks about this in a new documentary where she's told mRNA vaccines are really effective against the Indian variant. And she goes, so what? When we actually needed them, when we were gasping for it, they weren't available. So all of this information just doesn't help us. But this crisis with the pandemic, whether it was hesitation with mask wearing, something that was also you know, a real, uh, real problem in the US, and I was there at the time um, when the pandemic 
pandemic began, or now vaccine hesitancy, which especially in the US, which is supposed to have kind of the best healthcare systems, right? They've exposed the danger of having replaced our public health systems with kind of this idea of um, effective, efficient, privatized healthcare. Amit Sengupta, one of the um, you know pioneers of the people's health movement talks about what the idea of public health is, which is to prevent people from falling sick in the first place. Because if you link the idea of care to kind of sickness, then obviously it'll be linked to profit. So pharma companies, have an interest in people falling sick and they only enter the kind of enter the sphere after sickness has already occurred but governments should have a real interest in making sure that people don't fall sick in the first place and if they do then we'd care for them beyond kind of whether they have an ability to pay or not so this i think is also a real reckoning for all governments who've fallen prey to this neoliberal model of privatized healthcare to really rethink public health systems um you know sureka one of the healthcare worker union leaders who spoke at our plenary spoke about this so clearly where she says this we are the ones who struggle with this we are the ones who go door to door convincing everyone to take the vaccines so unless governments are also invested in this project we will continue to bear witness and you know fight on the front lines in in vain um so you know i think i i think it's about rethinking our public health systems Thank you so much, Varsha, for joining us today. Is Progressive.International the best place to find out more about the work you do? Yes, absolutely. We'll post a link to that as well as to the uh, Summit for Vaccine Internationalism, which just ended a couple of days ago. Thank you so much, Varsha. Good luck to you. Thank you. My guest has been Varsha Gandhikota Nalutla, co-coordinator of the Summit for Vaccine Internationalism. She's also a cabinet member of Progressive International, which organized the summit. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and watch all our video interviews. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.